All right. What a powerful song. Well, you can definitely tell in our church when our members are absent, can you? I see holes in our, in our pews. I know a lot of people are out today. I do hope they come back. If they were sick, I hope you uh, get well. And if you're out of town, I hope you find safe travel back to us. But today, I don't have a title. I do. I actually have a bunch of titles for this sermon. There were so many, I just said, we're going to call it Mark 2, <laughs> because that's the chapter we're going to be in today. If you're not there yet, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Um, yes, there were too many titles, and I decided to just uh, forego the title this week, although I'll be addressing all the themes in our sermon today. Um, there is a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. that goes, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Now, this was given in a speech um, addressing social injustice of minorities, which was so true then. But that statement is universal. I mean, it's in our church, in our lives. Listen, while you're at home, alone, in private, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Now, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to see that in Jesus Christ today in chapter 2 of Mark. Last week, we left off with Jesus stating, uh, let us go on to the next towns uh, that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. This is why I came here. Now, from that, in our text today, as we'll read, Jesus has returned home back to Capernaum back to Peter's house where he is residing. Not only did he return home, though, it was made known that he returned home. It was reported because his fame was definitely spreading. Jesus was becoming very, very, very popular. And it obviously has reached the ears of the scribes and the Pharisees in the area because they seem to be watching Jesus now. In fact, they are watching everything that he does with much more focus. So today, I want to compare four questions that are asked by the Pharisees and scribes in regard to the action of Jesus and disciples, his disciples. I want to compare the four questions they ask against his answers in response to their questions. We're going to hear how Jesus responds. Now, there is a problem developing within the Pharisees and scribes. There is a seed growing in them, and this problem that is developing is because Jesus' ministry is growing, and we know this problem is going to continue to grow. The main points of contention today, church family, please listen. The main points of contention, therefore, the forgiving of sins, uh, dining with sinners, fasting, and the Sabbath. These are the contentious areas that Jesus is going to talk uh, or respond to. But I have a big ask today of you. I have a huge ask. What I'm asking is for you not to look through the ultimate eyes of Jesus. That's the ultimate view. I don't want you to look through the eyes of Jesus. I don't want you to look through the eyes of the Pharisees or the scribes. I'm asking you today to be a disciple. 
I want you to use your creative, God-given imaginations, and I want you to look through the eyes of the disciples as we go through each part of this text. It's important because they are stuck in the middle, and I want us to be stuck in the middle, which was a possible title, by the way. I want us to be stuck in the middle as we witness the concerns and ensuing questions raised by the Pharisees and scribes about the things that Jesus is doing and then hear the response from Jesus. We are going to be watching a volley of question and answer, like watching a tennis match. But I want us to look through the eyes of the disciples. So today, please be that. Is Jesus right is a question that would first come in to our minds. Is Jesus right? And I'm going to tell you that Jesus Christ is the only one who could perfect and live out that quote that it's always the right time to do the right thing because Jesus is always doing the right thing no matter what time. So yes, what a beautiful, beautiful name it is. There is a connection though. I want to bridge the gap first and foremost right now before we jump into our text. There is a connection. Folks, We are connected to the disciples, and that's why I want you to look through their eyes. We are still stuck in the middle in today's world, just as the disciples were in their time. So let me just paint a simple picture. You have scribes and Pharisees that are pointing fingers of blame, accusations, and then you have the disciples listening to their religious elite, and then the response of the man they have chose to follow, Jesus Christ. They're hearing both sides. You and I are stuck in the middle like the disciples. We have the world pointing fingers of blame, making accusations, wanting answers for what we believe and why we believe, and then we have the very Word of God, the Word of Jesus. There's no difference in the fact that we are stuck in the middle responding to the world. But are we responding correctly? That's where I want us to take this. Look through the eyes of the disciple. Let's look at Mark. Look at the very first part of chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get, him, uh, not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I bet you haven't. 
Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? By answering the scribes' questions, Jesus was not in disagreement with them. He didn't disagree because it is God. It's God who can forgive sin and He alone. But He was proving in His answer that it was under His authority that this man's sins were being forgiven. So you have four men carrying a paralytic on his mat, okay? As they approach Peter's house, the crowd is ginormous. It's vast. It's huge. There were people in the home, and there were people outside the home. They could not get to Jesus. I want four friends like this, by the way. So the houses were designed as a single-story building, but on the side of the house was a staircase that went up to their roof. That's how these homes were designed. On that roof, people could climb up. to. You could sleep there. A lot of people went on the roofs to pray. You could dry produce. You could, it was for storage if you needed it. But there was a staircase that went up. So the four men carried this paralytic up those stairs. And what they did is they got down and they began to tear the thatch, the hardened earth, off the roof and make a hole. And when they did that, they revealed these poles that they could move out of the way, and they lowered the man down. I need you to use your imaginations. Picture this. Everybody has a different image, but you're picturing this paralytic being lowered down to Jesus through this roof. That would have been a sight, especially if you were in the house beginning to see the debris coming down and the light shining through. And the reason for the scribes' questions was because of this statement. Jesus saw their faith and said, all five of them now, not just the paralytics, he saw the four men too. He saw their faith. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. That was the reason for the scribes' questioning in their hearts. Jesus perceived this because he questions them in return. Now, if you're a disciple, you don't, you don't hear these questions. Only Jesus does. But they know now what's being asked in their heart in Jesus' response because he questions them. Jesus was meeting the greatest need of this man. I don't know if you see that. He went straight to sin, not the paralyzed man, not his infirmity, not his malady, not the issue with the physical. He went to the man's greatest need. It was spiritual over physical. It was your sins over get up, take your mat, and go home. And there's a lesson to be learned in that. The greatest need is for us to be forgiven. But then he says this. This is powerful. But that you may know. He's calling them out. But that you may know. And you need to hear me. This is what they're saying. Folks, forgiveness is invisible. Had Jesus stopped right there and said, your sins are forgiven. No one in that room would have known if this man's sins were forgiven. It's invisible. We don't see it. And this is the huge mistake these scribes made. I mean, basically they called Jesus out here. Because what happened, that you, he says, but that you may know that I have the authority down here on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to heal this man. And that's going to symbolize his healing inside. I'm going to show you the visible 
to reveal what you can't see, the invisible. I'm going to verify that this man's sins are forgiven when he gets up, takes his mat, and walks out the door. See, the scribes set themselves up. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus just verified the man's forgiveness through his physical healing. People were amazed. People glorified God. They said, we never saw anything like this. Do you want to know why? It's a small town. They would have seen this man sitting on his mat. They would have known he was a paralytic. He was paralyzed as he came through the roof, and now the man is walking out the front door? I got to ask you, what do you think the scribes thought? Were they part of this going, were they glorifying God? Were they amazed? Did they say, I've never seen anything like this? We don't know what they thought. We know how they were questioning Jesus prior. But all the people there were amazed. We never saw anything like this. My goodness, you had to be there. Now, the disciples were there. What did the disciples think? They're walking with Jesus Christ. They would have known this paralytic being in Capernaum. And here he is walking out the door. And what did Jesus say in the beginning? Your sins are forgiven. And that's representative of him getting up and walking out. That is powerful. The disciples are taking all this in. They understood how the questions came as Jesus responded. They're taking all of this in. Look at Mark 2. Let's look at verses 13 and 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him, and he reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners, tax collectors said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Wow. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that is the question. He's already been questioned in the hearts of the scribes. Hey, who alone can forgive sins but God? You're blaspheming. Who do you think you are? Now he's asking, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus answers with a simple, no-brainer question. He says, listen, who needs a doctor? Does a healthy person need a doctor, or does a sick person need a doctor? No-brainer. The sick needs the doctor. But what does he follow up with? He says, I came to call sinners. The great physician. I came to call sinners. See, when he identified himself as a physician for the sick, because the healthy don't need them, the sick do, he was underscoring that the time was fulfilled, that the kingdom of God was at hand. Just like the paralytic, your son, your sins are forgiven. The greatest need was met. He was meeting these men right there where they were because they were the greatest need. They were the sick who needed the physician. So this was underscoring that the kingdom of God was at hand, and this was part of the good news that Jesus started with initially in his ministry. It was God's work in redeeming people from evil's power. 
You want to know why I'm eating with sinners? So, let's talk about Levi, who we know is Matthew. I call him Matthew. Matthew was approached. He received an invitation, and he responded to that invitation, just like the four fishermen did. They were, set, they were told, follow me. The problem is, a fisherman, I believe, is more suitable to be a disciple of Jesus. You know? A tax collector is hardly suitable to be a disciple of a rabbi, of a great teacher, because they're thieves, they're cheats. Tax collectors were outcasts. We wouldn't hang out with tax collectors. So this man was hardly suitable for the position, but here's Jesus offering him the invitation, and Matthew responds. So they follow this outcast, along with his network of friends, other tax collectors, other sinners. See, Jesus is ushering in something new. And this gets me going. I get pumped up with this. He's, in, he's ushering in something new. But let me tell you something. The doctrine that God saves sinners was not new to these people. I mean, no Jew would have denied that. They know that God saves sinners. But you have to understand something about Pharisees, okay? Repentance according to the Pharisees, according to their scribes, would have, they would have needed to see evidence of change first through the adherence of the law's regulations. Then, then you could come into the fold, if you will. First, we need to see evidence that evidence is you adhering to our regulations and the laws, and then we can talk. See, Jesus was asserting that God loves and saves them as sinners, not waiting for them to become righteous or deserving of salvation, but meeting them right where they are, sin and all. That's what Jesus Christ does. He meets you right there, sin and all. You don't have to adhere to something first. You don't have to follow this rule or practice this regulation. Jesus is amazing. This is the new that he was bringing in. It is always the right time to do the right thing. So Jesus came to preach the message, and we know that message was to repent and believe. We get that in the very first part of Mark. John the Baptist prepared the way for him by preaching the same message. Jesus, the great physician, was meeting sinners' greatest need, and that's why he was dining with sinners. The disciples were there. They witnessed the calling of Matthew. The disciples were invited to his house to have supper with all his friends. They were asked the question. The disciples were the ones asked the question, why are you eating with these people? So let's look through the disciples' eyes. They're following Jesus who asked a tax collector to follow him just like he asked them. Okay, well, I guess he's going to be part of the crew too. Well, come back and have dinner with me. Oh, follow Jesus and them. We're going to go have dinner at a tax collector's house. And then the courtyards is where they had their dinner. I mean, people could walk by and view. This is how they could see these things. The disciples were getting this question from the Pharisees, and then they were looking to Jesus. They didn't answer. Jesus heard, 
But there was something developing, again, with the Pharisees and scribes. In their questioning, we have to know that something evil, something nasty is continuing to grow in them. There is a problem developing, but guess what? There's also something developing in the hearts of the disciples as they take everything in, as they hear these questions and listen to Jesus' answers. There is something developing there. Continue to use your imaginations. Picture yourself dining with these sinners. Picture yourself dining with Matthew. Jesus getting up and addressing the religious elite, explaining the whole physician. Who needs the doctor? The healthier, the sick. Now another question is asked. Mark 2, let's look at verses 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins." Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And now we get, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay. This is one of my favorite answers. It's one of my top favorite answers of Jesus. He answers the people's question, and we say people, the Bible tells us, uh, with two parables, two of them. These parables, though, they speak to the larger problem raised by this question. Now, let me rephrase the question. Why didn't Jesus' followers observe this religious custom of fasting? Well, let's look at the first. Well, by the way, really, I want you to know something. <clears throat> This question, this is really directed towards the disciples, as if to say, Jesus, whatever you want to do on your own, that's fine. It's your business. But why would you lead your disciples into such careless behavior as not fasting when we're all fasting? That's what we really want to know. So to fast, you have to go back to understand what it was, fasting was originally connected to. And that was the Day of Atonement. One day of year, one day a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, okay? And he would offer this Day of Atonement, this atoning sin for the nation of Israel, for their sins. And in this time, they expressed sorrow for their sin by fasting. And that's the connection. This custom is also seen during periods of mourning. By the way, just to throw it out there, who's ever had a really bad breakup and just didn't eat? You remember those days? Oh, why'd she break up with me? We were perfect. 
and I'm not going to eat anymore. You know, it was involuntary, but there were days of mourning where people just didn't eat, it was, and, and they fasted. But the other problem was it became a normal practice for some people. In fact, there's a story of a Pharisee boasting, saying, God, look at me, look at me. I am so glad I am not like these other people. I fast twice a week, and there were other things, but I'm going to stop there. I fast twice a week. Now, we don't know. This is unfortunate. We don't know uh, the setting of this occurrence, but obviously there was a period of fasting going on. Here's the problem. Fasting was supposed to be done in secret. The Bible tells us that. These men would dishovel their hair. That's my fake hair. Dishovel their hair, right? Uh, if you were wearing makeup, they'd smear your makeup and wrinkle your clothes. you try to look so, oh, it's me, I'm fasting. They wanted people to see. And what God was saying, there you go, buddy, that's your reward. You want to share that? You want it to be shown? You want to reveal it? It's supposed to be in secret. So these men coming to Jesus, hey, why aren't they fasting? We're all fasting. That was wrong. Now, here's my favorite part. Jesus talks about a wedding feast. Weddings were huge in the day. We're talking a week long, seven days. It was a time of joy. It was a time of celebration. These people ate. They danced. They partied. They just loved and embraced what was happening with the bride and the bridegroom. Guess what? It was inappropriate to mourn at a wedding feast. It was inappropriate just to get up and say, well, we're going to go on vacation. It was inappropriate to leave. It was inappropriate to fast. You did not fast at a wedding feast while the bridegroom was still there. Unheard of. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's here now. You don't fast now. You don't mourn now. You'll have time for that later when he's gone. Then you can fast. See, there was a great work being done. We ain't got time for this. A great work was being done. So he talks about the wedding feast. By the way, the bridegroom will come back for his bride if we want to go to the end times. That's us, the church. And you can see Jesus in that position again. But let's talk about the unshrunk cloth and the new wine, because I think this summarizes everything perfectly. If you were to put an unshrunk, non-tested piece of cloth on an old garment trying to sew around that hole, it is going to pull away eventually. It's not going to work. If you're going to put uh, new wine into old skins, there is no elasticity anymore. They're, they're brittle. If you put new wine into these skins, the fermenting process is going to cause them to burst. Not only is the skin now damaged, but all your wine is on the ground. Both indicate that the new Jesus' teachings could not integrate with the old, and that is the religious structures and practices of traditional Judaism. They did not work together. This new message, it was too different to be fitted into old patterns or institutions. Jesus was bringing in something brand new. He was not condemning the old, but as he ushered in the new, he revealed the old's passing of its useful period. 
See, these people created what I like to call religious boxes, figurative religious boxes. I believe this, this, and this, and they fit into my box perfectly. What are you saying? That does not fit into my box. They made religious boxes, and guess who did not fit? Jesus did not fit. What he was teaching, what he was doing, this is not appropriate. He does not fit in our boxes. The old garment and the old wide-skinned folks, they had served their purpose. They were useful in their time. But Jesus brought in the new. And let me explain this a little further to us, like the believer. The believer has been made new. Do we try and hold on to the old life? Do we try to blend the two? Because the new creation and the old, they do not mesh. The old and the new, they do not work. So listen to this, because this is profound. So the kingdom at hand, Jesus' presence and the work he's doing, the kingdom at hand cannot be regarded as a patch over the regulations of the Mosaic law and traditions. It's not going to work. The kingdom at hand cannot be new wine placed in an old wineskin. And the disciples are the ones that are going to carry on the new, stuck in the middle. We know that Jesus is preparing them all. We'll see this as we develop in Mark. They are going to carry on this new. So it's important that they hear Jesus' answers, and it's important for us too. Look at Mark 2, 23 through 28. This concludes our chapter of Mark 2, actually. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus, what are they doing? That is not lawful on the Sabbath. Here's our fourth question. God alone is the only one who can heal, the only one who can forgive. Why are you eating with these people, horrible tax collectors and sinners? Why? Are you allowing your disciples to f- not to fast when we all are? And now, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Once again, the disciples are the ones targeted. So Jesus relates a story. Our Lord and Savior is absolutely brilliant. I don't have to tell you that. He relates a story of need in answering the Pharisees' question. I don't know how we would answer any of these, by the way. That's why I like to hear what Jesus, how he answers. I don't want to give it away too long. I'll get to that in a second. So we know the words, what is not lawful. We, 
we don't know the specific regulations that were broken. We don't know exactly the laws that were broken. But we can see that the controversy was that they did this on the Sabbath. They did this on the Sabbath. So most likely, uh, it was the harvesting and threshing of the grain is what they were picking at, which was not to be done on the Sabbath as it was considered work. Folks, the religious elite of the time added so much burden to the Sabbath that anything was work. It became to the point almost that it was, it was just ridiculous. You couldn't adhere to these things. So Jesus was defending his disciples. He was defending them when he told the story of David's flight. David's flight from King Saul. He was running from King Saul, and guess what? They were hungry. The bread of presence, let me talk about that. That was 12 loaves of bread that were placed in the temple. On the table, the golden table in the temple, it was six loaves and six loaves. 12 loaves of bread. They were replaced every Sabbath, and only priests were allowed to eat this bread. It was offered in sacrifice, and it was reserved for the priest. But there was a need. David and his men were hungry. The point that Jesus was making by referencing this story was that the law was rightly broken for the sake of men in need, including David, who they all would have respected. David was not in the wrong, nor were Jesus' disciples. They, too, were not in the wrong. So from Jesus' point of view, the law was intended to be helpful and redemptive, not restrictive. If you look at the laws that were created for the Sabbath, that were added, man-made rules, folks, you would see the restriction you would see the heavy burden. So he was saying that the restrictive, pharisaic interpretation of, knee, uh, uh, of the law does not take account, excuse me, does not take into account the situation of need. All you're looking at is your rules. You're not looking at the need. David and his men found themselves in need. Jesus and his disciples found themselves in need. Folks, this wasn't a Sunday stroll through a field, right? They were about the Lord's business. He had already explained this about the fasting. I don't got time to fast. So man in his need, hear me this, and please hear me on this one. Man in his need must not be robbed of help by a law which was intended by God to help man. But the Pharisees did not see it that way. Again, Jesus was bringing in the new because it was always the right time to do the right thing. Jesus emphasized that man is not to be confined by the Sabbath, but that the Sabbath is actually a gift to you, a gift to mankind for spiritual and physical refreshment. He has authority over this Sabbath. This takes us back to the paralytic and the forgiveness of his sins in which Jesus had all authority to forgive. And the text that we read before, the various sickness and diseases, Jesus had all authority to heal. All the demons that wanted to call him out, he had all authority to shut their mouths and cast them out. And now we see that the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Like the bridegroom reference, they were about the kingdom's business day in and day out. They were fighting against Satan and his agents of evil. And folks, this business was the most important business in the world. There was nothing more important than what Jesus was doing. But every turn, at every turn, we see that he is confronted by people that want to question his motives, question his person, question his ministry. Today, I asked you to do something huge. We look through the eyes of the disciples in Mark 2. They were a part of every component that we discussed. The paralytic, eating at Matthew's house, not fasting, right, breaking the law on the Sabbath. They were a part of everything. Jesus, they watched. They watched as Jesus responded to the four questions that were asked by both the Pharisees and their scribes. The questions, again, revolved around Jesus forgiving that paralytic of his sins. And by showing the forgiveness, he was healed. Jesus calling Matthew and then eating at his house with all his friends. They didn't see Jesus meeting the greatest need, but Jesus was there doing that very thing. Then they complain about them not fasting. And they, they also go on to say they're committing an awful, unlawful act on the Sabbath at every turn. So the seed in the Pharisees and the scribes, this seed is growing and it's growing larger. It's developing. And you know what it's leading to? It's leading to the plotting and the scheming to destroy Jesus. That's all these questions allude to, to the destruction of Jesus. He had to be removed because he did not fit into their religious boxes. Did not fit. The new was not mixing with the old. Now I told you at the very beginning, I'm going to bridge this gap. We have a connection to this story, and it is the disciples. We have a great connection. They walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They witnessed firsthand these four points of contention. They could have walked away at any time. Judas did. Judas walked away. They could have walked away at any time. But, I mean, they listened to their religious elite. They heard everything they had to say. They would know who these people are. I mean, are they right? I, they've got concerns, Jesus. I, Maybe you can help it. They had Jesus on this side answering the questions. They listened to everything. It was a volley back and forth. But you know what? In all this, I have to say something. Who did they continue to follow? They followed Jesus Christ. To their deaths, they would continue to follow him, folks. Every single one of these men they would take over the ministry that Jesus began uh, when he left. Death, resurrection, ascension. They would take over. That's why these 12 were being prepared. We're going to talk about that next week. They would now be the ones answering the questions from the religious elite. They would now be the ones standing in defense of false teachers, of false teachings, of all endless accusations. They would be defending they were stuck in the middle between the world and the very Word of God, folks. That's where the disciples were. 
This is our connection because we find ourselves in the same place. Now, I wanted you to use your creative, beautiful God-given minds, right, to picture yourself there looking through the eyes of disciples. But I'm going to tell you right now, we do not use our imaginations to answer the world's questions. We do not need to create an answer for unbelieving ears because it is the Word of God that speaks. We listen to Jesus because He speaks. 1 Peter 3.15, one of my favorite verses because I'm an apologist at heart. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give an answer for your joy, uh, uh, for your hope. Why do you believe this? Give an answer for your beliefs. Folks, we are carrying on the ministry of the disciples as they were carrying on the ministry of Jesus. It's continued on to this day and landed right in our laps. We are stuck in the middle. There is no way around it as a Christian that you were stuck in the middle. We are now casting the net. We are now ministering anywhere at any time to anyone. And that's equivalent to you and I striving to live out that quote. Notice I said striving to. There's no way we are perfecting this. Only one can live out this quote, but we are striving to do the right thing at the right time. You know, the disciples depended on Jesus to answer these questions. Did you guys notice that? Is Jesus answering the question? They didn't make stuff up. Jesus answered these questions. We, too, are depending on Jesus for the very same thing. So I want to talk about knowing our place knowing our position as ministers of the Word, because that's who we are, guess what? I have a challenge for you all. Based on our text today, I have a challenge for you all, and it is about knowing the Bible. Listen, if you're reading the Bible chapter to chapter to chapter, book by book, and you want to finish it in a year, I know there's a lot of great reading plans to finish the Bible in a year. I'm not that guy. I'll go ahead and tell you that. I'm not that guy. Um, I don't want to, and if you, more power to you if this is your thing. If you like to read the Bible cover to cover, or I've done it 10 times, I'm going to do it another time. That's my goal this year. More power to you. But I'm going to ask, what are you getting out of that? Because I had to read the Bible too. Okay, I've finished Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to read John this weekend, and the next week I'm going to conquer uh, Acts, Romans, then I'm going to move on to his epistles. But what am I getting from it? Maybe you are. I'm going to tell you I don't. I prefer to do something what I call chunks. I've talked about this before, chunking. Uh, it's called a, in, in the theological world, it's called a pericope. It's where you take a small or extract a small source from a greater source. Like in Mark 2, if we just focused on fasting, the part on fasting, we'd be taking a pericope, we'd be extracting a small source, and we'd be examining it. I want you to allow Scripture to penetrate you to the core. I want Scripture to become written on your heart. I don't see that happening when you read a book through and then another book and another book, which is great. I love that you're reading the Bible, but what I need to do is I need this, what you're reading, to actually penetrate you. And folks, 
the disciples, they listened to Jesus' answers. They heard every one of them. We have to do the same, and it starts right here in our Bibles. It starts right here. If we are going to answer questions like Jesus did, we need to know how Jesus answered questions. So my challenge for you is to slow down. Slow down and begin to examine the text that you're reading. I mean, take a few verses, take a small part of a chapter and read it all week long. What's the problem? What's the tension? Is Jesus talking? Is he giving a command? Is prophecy attached to this? How can I bridge the gap between what the author's saying there and into my life right now? How can I allow this scripture to speak to me? We have to slow down and examine what's being said, just like the disciples listened to every word that came out of Jesus' mouth when he responded to the Pharisees and scribes' questions. For instance, today, can you use in your defense, hey, get up and take your mat and go home, which is one of my favorite things. You want to talk about sin and you want to talk about forgiveness and you want to talk about what it looks like? Get up, take your mat, and go home. Can you talk about that today? If not, this week, pick that. Study that. What about it's the sick who need the doctor? Can you discuss that with somebody else? Is that written on your heart? Can you explain what that means? And of course, we have uh, you don't fast while you're with the bridegroom. We have that. And we also have uh, you do not, don't you know what David and his men did when they were hungry? These are wonderful things if we slow down and examine them and let them be written on our hearts so that we can pull these up, not only in conversation, but when we are in need. See, too many people are just reading the Bible for the sake of reading the Bible. Yeah, I read it. I read John. Well, what did it say to you? I don't know. I just, I just read it. We have to allow Scripture to penetrate us like the disciples did when they heard Jesus actually say the words It is always the right time to do the right thing. Church family, our right thing is to be able to answer this question. Why do you choose to follow Christ? If I put you in a room somewhere else in the church and I invited 10 non-believing people and I said, you guys ask him or ask her that question, each of you, I want to hear the answer. Would each answer be different? Would they vary or would it be the same? How would you answer to a non-believer why you choose to continue to follow Christ? Think about it right now in your head. The disciples had to make that decision. Okay, I see what they're saying. I see what he's saying. I'm going to follow Jesus. Why do you continue to follow Jesus? We have to know what God is saying to us because you and I are stuck in the middle between the world and the very word of God, how do we answer to them? Do we make it up? No. Let the word of God speak, but we have to know that word. So I'm telling you, challenge, please accept it. Slow down, examine, let the word of God be written on your heart, that you can meditate on it, that you can think about it, and that you can use it in defense and in the possible salvation process of another person. God's word is powerful. There is nothing more powerful than Jesus Christ. And he is our Lord and Savior. He speaks for us if we will just take it in and listen.
always the right time to do the right thing. Why do you choose to continue following Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this sermon. I know what it meant to me, Lord. I know what it meant to me, Father God. You know that I was stuck on the paralytic. That's where I was, Lord, all week. All week long, I still am thinking about those words that Jesus said, making the invisible visible, making it real for the scribes to see that he had authority to forgive sins by answering the question, only God alone can forgive sins, and there he is, God, God among us, powerful. God, we read over this stuff too quickly. We read over this stuff as if it's an assignment. Father God, my prayer today is that this church slows down and examines what you have for us. Lord, I need it just as much as anybody else here. Help us slow down and listen to how you answer the questions of this world. Our questions, Father God, you have, you have every answer in your word for us if we will slow down and let you speak to us. Father, I pray that every beating heart in here is rece that's receiving this message accepts this challenge, Lord. That's my prayer today, including the pastor of this church, that I accept this challenge, that we examine what you have for us. Lord, that we let it penetrate us to the core and let your word be written on our hearts. I thank you for Mark too. I thank you for the four parts to the story. I thank you that Jesus had to answer these questions when no one else could. And I thank you for the disciples being able to sit there and listen to everything. And I thank you for the Holy Spirit having them recall this event, Lord, so that it could be recorded for our learning. You knew what you were doing. You knew exactly what you were doing because we learn from every word that you have given us. Lord, my prayer is that the challenge is accepted. I pray that we slow down and truly hear you, listen to you. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.